0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy here at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director, and Paul Weber, endowed chair of politics, science, and religion. Um, I am alone on the interviewer side of the mic today, but uh, not alone in the room because we are thrilled to be joined in person by Dr. Taha Rauf, our new um, postdoctoral fellow here at CAD um, and, and the subject for our episode today. Uh, before we get to that great interview, uh, thanks, as always, to the leadership of my colleague, Tori Dahl. CAD's podcast channel is, of course, available uh, all over the interwebs on our website through the University of Louisville Center for Asian Democracy, as well as through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search Center for Asian Democracy, subscribe, review, and stay up to date on future content. Uh, we will have a couple more episodes coming out before the end of this uh academic semester in mid-December, and so uh, stay tuned for more great conversations. We're joined today uh, by Dr. Taha Rauf for a discussion on Islam and democracy in India. Um, It is uh, a fascinating topic. It's one that we usually talk about these days in the press and also in a lot of academic work, actually, from the point of view, actually, of India's Hindu majority, right, Um, with Hindu nationalist politics um, being tied to anti-Muslim sentiment and even anti-Muslim violence, um, Taha's research uh, pivots the question, um, in a way, with focus on diversity within India's Muslim community. And this attention to local diversity among India's Muslim community is one reason that, uh, that we're so excited about Taha's research and to, uh, and to promote it here at the, at the center. Um, before we get to the interview, by way of slightly more formal introduction, Dr. Taha Rauf is a joint PhD in political science and social work from the mm-hmm. University of Michigan. Uh, where he studied the implications of local religious institutions for long-run development and democratic performance in the country. Um, His research is is motivated by an intersecting set of questions. How do institutions resolve collective action problems? Um, What are the long-run implications of different institutional structures uh, for development and democratic performance? Um, How do institutions adapt to overcome failures in collective action? Um, and to address pervasive underdevelopment and even conflict and violence, um, and what makes some political and religious institutional legacies scale up over time, but not others. Um, It's a fascinating uh, dissertation project that focuses at its core on a distinction between medieval Muslim religious institutions, madrasas and Sufi chanakas, and you'll hear a lot more from him about what that means in practice and how he goes about isolating and studying their effects. Um, In addition to studying uh, these religious institutions, uh, Taha has a research agenda that focuses on intergroup relations, religious violence, infant mortality, microfinance, and even the Twitterverse, uh, with a special focus throughout that research on multi-ethnic societies experiencing uh, democratic entrenchment or backsliding. Prior to graduate school, he worked on international aid and local development research projects across multiple states and communities in India, um, where he also received uh, previous education and training in social work. We are proud to have Taha with us at CAD this year um, and really excited for you all to hear a little bit more about his research today. And so without any further ado, let's get on to our conversation with Dr. Taha Raouf. Dr. Taharouf, welcome to the pod. We're so glad to have you here. Good to be here. All right. Um, Well, as uh, as we'll explain in the intro material, um, you're going to be on the other side of the mic asking questions as the year goes on. Um, But for now, we're going to be talking to you about your research and how you got here to... Uh, to the Center for Asian Democracy. Um, but uh, maybe we can start off with a more important uh, question closer to home. You're getting settled into Louisville. This is your first time living in Kentucky. How have you found the place so far? What stands out to you? I, I like
1: Louisville a lot. It's, it's a bigger city than what I'm used to. I'm uh, Coming from only my experience in Ann Arbor. <laughs> And it's definitely a larger city. There's uh, a lot of things to do here. So I'm looking forward to especially the Derby uh, next spring. Um, I saw the photos online. They look fantastic and I can't wait to get dressed up.
0: That's right. So we're gonna have to get you uh, acclimated to the track here before too long. Actually, uh, it's uh, it's obviously a part of the academic mission of the center, um, and then uh, and then prepared for the the festivities in early May. Um, it's also quite a bit warmer here than it is in Ann Arbor. I would imagine we've got yeah. 80 degrees and sunny here today in Louisville. So uh, I
1: was in Midwest a couple of days ago, and it had uh, snowed in surrounding areas. Um, it was pretty cold. there's apparently
0: record high of all November eights. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, uh, again, we are so glad to have you here at the Center. We're getting you settled in um, and, uh, and excited to have your, uh, your research with us and, uh, and your expertise with us as the year goes on. Um, we're going to talk to you today mostly about uh, the politics of Islam in India, right? Um, this is actually a topic that is decently common in even mainstream media these days, right? You hear a fair amount about uh, Muslims in Indian politics. But mostly it's actually coverage of how the Muslim minority is being treated, especially by the majority, especially these days tied to the BJP government Um, and its kind of Hindu nationalist wing. Um, What that sometimes leaves out is the nature of the Muslim community itself, right? Um, You know this, but our listeners may not. Um, India is one of the largest Muslim communities in the world. It's actually one of my favorite uh, sort of tricks or games when I'm teaching a religion and international politics class is to ask my students what are the largest Muslim countries in the world, right? And where are the most Muslims in the world? They usually say things like maybe Egypt, right, or, um, uh, or other Arab countries. Um, but, of course, India would be really high up that list, at, at probably over 200 million I was thinking that maybe you could actually just get us started by giving us a sense of the nature of India's Muslim minority. Um, how would you characterize it? Talk a little bit about its internal diversity um, and uh, um, and how you've observed some of that diversity in your own research.
1: Yeah, you're right. Absolutely that um, India and Indian Muslims are... Um, very diverse and a very large population. I think it's uh, Indian Muslim population is about the second largest Muslim population or third largest after Indonesia and Pakistan in the world. So uh, just in numbers, uh, in two th- by 2011 census, they were about 14 point something percent, 6 percent, I think, of the uh, total population. Now Indian population is 1.4 billion. And uh, Muslims uh, uh, by, you know, 2 percent growth rate uh, would be... Uh, Estimated, uh, they are estimated to be around 200 210 million uh, uh, today. So yeah, it's it's a big number, but it's an equally diverse population. Just because India is itself is such a diverse country, and then people who throughout the last millennium gradually got Islamized. were also coming from all these different regions. So they are very diffused. They're not um, located in a one particular geography or concentrated in majority in one particular region, um, say, as is generally the ethnic distribution in many countries. Uh, they are in every each and every state. Um, I was looking into uh, while my, while I was doing research, I was looking into the Sufi Khan institutions that I study, and I found that they were they also existed in some of the northeastern states that border Bangladesh on the you know ex- the far east side of Indian borders. So the Bengal Delta is a fascinating um, uh, subject in itself on how uh, Muslims there came to be, uh, what were the processes that were undertaken, which were very long in nature. And then North India is a different uh, animal altogether in the sense that that's where the Mughal Empire was the strongest. And uh, they did, they weren't really interested in converting anyone, but they were interested in getting the tax revenue as much as possible. So what kind of uh, management of different ethnicities and hierarchies they had to undertake, uh, all those things, in, in North India um, is very uh, sort of, Go to, and then there's South India, which is of course um, uh, very different from North India. Historically, linguistically, um, it also uh, has a very different kind of trade relations. Historically, both uh, to its west with the Arabian Peninsula and the eastern coast of Africa, as well as uh, towards the west, towards the east with the Indonesian archipelago. So all these trade routes and a lot of exchanges that happened uh, throughout this Indian Ocean region. Uh, really left its mark in in the in, um, in the South India and in the Muslim community that exists today in South India. So yeah, um, I think yeah I should mention the, another major region um, apart from many other smaller regions, which is the northwestern region of India, the Punjab, um, uh, which. Uh, in the colonial period included this current state of Haryana as well, as well as the Punjab that is in Pakistan. So this Punjab region, again, it's, it's a very different uh, landscape altogether. Uh, Sufi Khan has, uh, profilerate uh, the region for a very, very long time there, right from the beginning of the 11th century, uh, maybe even a century earlier. So yeah, there are a lot of these different dynamics going on with a lot of different kinds of institutions, whether it be the decentralized institutions of Sufi Khangas or the Mughal and before them the Delhi Sultanate rulers who were ruling mostly in the North Indian region or the many, um, the scholastic class, the clergy class of Muslims, the Maulanas and the Ulemas who also uh, proliferated the North Indian region.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, some of this diversity is actually what your research is about, right? Which maybe now we can, we can tee you up to, to talk about. Um, so you've already referenced um, Sufi orders, right, and, and the infrastructure that went along with them, the Sufi Hanukkahs. Um, maybe for listeners who aren't familiar, you could just give us a quick overview, first of all, of what these Hanukkahs are, what they lo- where they come from, but also what they uh, look like in the communities. What social role do they play?
1: So Sufi Khankas are uh, religious institutions among Muslims that developed a couple of centuries after the death of Prophet Muhammad. And um, they are very decentralized in nature. They are not uh, organizationally centralized as, say, the church is the Catholic or the Protestant church, or even the more of a class uh, dynamic that is found among the clergy of Muslims, the priestly class, uh, which has been usually associated with the rulers. So... uh, Uh, In the Indian subcontinent, um, my research looks into the Sufi khankas, and I base my understanding on the historical and anthropological scholarship on the subject, a lot of which has been done, especially in the regions of, uh, like I was talking, the Bengal Bengal Delta and um, the northwestern region, the Punjab. Some on uh, Deccan region, the southern India, and a little bit more on the northern region as well, the uh, Gangetic Belt, the Hindi Belt. So, but um, there, there is a kind of understanding that Uh, A lot of these Sufi Khankas in the rural India uh, really diffused across the agrarian, expanding agrarian frontiers. So a lot of times these were people who wanted to survive, who wanted to make something uh, for themselves. And then they undertook this entrepreneurial activity in these agrarian frontiers away from the uh, stable and um, rule of, you know, rule in the Uh, Hindi belt so usually these areas were away or even within the Hindi belt they were away from the established centers and then gradually after the the death of these entrepreneurs the communities that they settled the people they had influenced or um, the people they had um, Mm -hmm. sort of uh, provided a spiritual anchor to, in these newly settled communities, they became Islamized. And these entrepreneurs, uh, Richard Eaton, the historian who writes most on the subject, calls them religious entrepreneurs, they they are then referred to as Sufis, reverential figures. So they become uh, revered figures posthumously after their death.
0: Can you give me a little sense? So what's going on in these structures? Are these structures for worship? Are they structures for coordinating economic activity, both education? What's happening in these, in these places? So
1: these uh, religious institutions are uh, pe- peculiar in the sense that um, they differ from the, you know, the popular um, what today is a sort of the dominant um, interpretation to say that we understand. Of Islam, um, which is the clergy-oriented interpretation, which is coming on the basis of scriptures alone. So the whole debate among different clergies, different schools Islamic schools of thought is about how to interpret uh, interpretate the scriptures, what uh, words and what hadith would uh, carry, how much weight, and what it actually means. That's the debate. But um, in, in for these sufi khankas uh, scripture is not the only source of uh interpreting religion and having a religion and practicing it they very much uh, consider life as a journey of finding the truth so in in a nutshell uh, they are much more uh, uh open minded about what islam should look like and what who it should cater to and you know where the boundaries should be demarcated um Usually, it's a much less uh, boundary-oriented um, activity, the Sufi activity, and these centers were more or less providing um, some kind of a, a spiritual nourishment in these uncertain, agrarian frontiers, because um, just because you know these frontiers were also dangerous places, they were not only away from the established regions, so they didn't have that much of a law and order going on for them but they were also very close to the wildlife. Um, so a lot of times um, the folklore that is written about Sufi Khanka is concerned with how the Sufi gets rid of the, the, tiger for the Bengal tiger, for example, in Bengal Delta, um, and then you know clears out the forest and all the animals run away, and then he passes his uh, betel nut that he chews to his followers, and they also gain his strength and Those sort of dynamics. They're they're providing some uh, certainty in a very uncertain uh, land through spiritual anchorship and also through provision of uh, mass pre-modern public goods. So they are uh, engaged in the distribution of amulets, which provides some kind of uh, psychological security to these people in these uh, uncertain frontiers. They also provide free food and uh, some... um, degree of uh, services in terms of education and health, whatever uh, they could at that time. So th- there is a, a, some kind of a coordination that is going on to ensure uh, stability in these uh, settlements at the agrarian frontiers by these Sufi Khangas. Are
0: they land holder-
1: holders? Or are they land owners? They, so that's one of their main incentives is that uh, once they're able to establish uh, agrarian settlements, they can then uh, ask the uh, Mughals in this period, the the Mughals, for example, administration, to give them land uh, or recognize their claim over some part of the land in the new settlement. And uh, these settlements also are um, free of taxes. The Mughal administration makes them free of, of taxes for about five to six years initially, after which only... Um, these new areas are uh, taxed by the, the administration. So that's that's one of the uh, topics in Richard Eaton's work, and um, he's, he, he is going into this process happening as late as 18th century when the Mughal Empire has um, almost um, sort of uh, disintegrated, yet the, the process is continuing, and the administration is still kind of uh, f- sort of there so, the, 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 and the Sufis are still expanding the frontier, still asking for land in return for the, the, the people they settle, the agrarian uh, revenue that will be, co- be coming out in the later period after five, six years of that duration is over. So, it has its own momentum. It gains enough kind of a, a mass, I guess, that it gets its own momentum going on in these regions.
0: So that's the Sufi infrastructure side of your story. Um, one of the main contrasts that you draw in your work is between that Sufi pattern of organization and then some of the alternative forms of uh, of Muslim uh, institutionalization in the country, especially around madrasas and, uh, and different relations to the official imperial centers or political authorities. What's the other side of the story? Tell us what that institutional model looks like.
1: So I think this uh, topic hasn't been really looked into yet. Um, The institutional differences between different um, uh, religious institutions. So, like you mentioned, the madrasa. The madrasa is where the religious clerics get trained. The graduates there, then, uh, in the medieval period, they went on to be hired by the administration. They went on to create their own madrasas, where graduates were hired by the administration. Uh, Different dynasties competed to get different famous scholars in their region because they wanted to be associated with a famous scholar, and also they needed uh, uh, basically to bolster their bureaucracy. Um, in, the, in the Muslim world, I think across, um, uh, it is today we might think of them only in terms of the religious clergy, but they were also the bureaucracy. So in a lot of ways, um, not only is the religion being used as a bureaucracy by the ruler, but also... This uh, process is also, I think, um, changing the form of Islam that is coming out of the Madarsas. So a lot of the uh, Machiavellian, not Machiavellian, I think, um, uh, Manishian version of Islam that we see that comes out of um, the Madarsas is due to, I think, um, uh, the fact that uh, they had to historically engage in a lot of uh, do's and don'ts of governance provide legitimacy to the ruler, make sure that the revenue um, is being maximized by the administration and there is enough peace and stability for the larger rule of law, of the, whether it's the Mughal emperor or sultanate, whoever,
0: is, is, uh, is going on, is persisting. Okay, so you've just described to us a super interesting historical research project, but you're not a historian, you're a political scientist, we're not a historical research center, no offense, we're a political science research center, right, Um, on democracy today. How do these kind of historical patterns that you're talking about here, about the different organization of Islam in uh, South Asia at the time and in, in what we think of as India now, how does that matter for politics today? Um, trace yeah. those mechanisms.
1: Yeah, I think it matters very much in the sense that these processes have been going on for the better part of the last millennium. Earlier Sufi hangar, um is traced, uh, I think, in Indian subcontinent back to 10th or 11th century and so is the Madarsa. Um, so Um, I think wherever an institution is persisting for such a long period of time, like almost 700, 800 years, or even more, uh, they leave some uh, legacies behind. They are able to condition the norms locally, or they are able to condition um, the institutions that develop there uh, later on. So in this case, I think um, a lot of these madarsas are centered in the North India. A lot of the muslim clergy is coming from north india so there we see that the um the the ethnicities have much more are, are much more coalesced around religion for example um because i think the management of ethnicities required the administration to recognize the religion bou- religious boundaries and then manage them accordingly so uh, whether the state was hiring brahmins or whether the state were hiring uh, Muslim clergy um, or Jains or some other castes, uh, for example, Caius castes. Um, so it, it tended to leave its mark on the uh, organizational capacity that each of these identities endowed with, just because they were so intermingled with the state. I I don't think that is true for um, the identities near and around Sufi hankas, because Sufi hankas were not engaged in the work of managing, um, you know, enforcing rule of law or managing order as such. Uh, Their main interest was their own survival and survival of the communities around them. So they had to essentially maximize participation in the religious life that they had, and also sort of anchor a marketplace where they could benefit from the rents from the marketplace. And they for a marketplace to succeed again, you need uh, to maximize participation. So I think both these um, orientations are very different. One is much more state oriented; the other is much more uh, market oriented and collective, local, collective action oriented. And then the legacies of these uh, divergent kind of uh, mechanisms, I think, leave uh, divergent uh, uh, lead to divergent behavioral outcomes today. So in my research, for example, we see that um, as uh, the village is uh, becomes more near, the distance to uh, Sufi Khanka becomes closer, we see much more market activity. And in constituencies, assembly constituencies, with uh, more Sufi Khanka, we see uh, much more electoral competition, which is a very uh, uh, well-known indicator of participation as well. So this is not the case for... Um, constituencies that have uh, Madarsas or villages that are close to Madarsas. There, we don't see that much uh, market activity. And uh, we know from other works of on the religious violence that religious violence tends to be more in these areas where uh, where today we also find that Madarsas uh, exist, which is basically the North India. But yeah, more fine-grained research probably can um, demarcate this mechanism more clearly. Sure. Um,
0: So uh, I'd have to ask you for a second about your data sources for these kinds of research, because I think it's super interesting. Um, You're talking about centuries old institutions here. Um, How do you how do you track those down? How do you compile them into into a form that we can actually do sort of social science on today?
1: So, uh, thanks to the you know British obsession with recording everything, we had a detailed <laughs> documentation of uh, all the work property in India, and um, they 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 had established Wakf boards across India as well. And uh, today, the government of India is digitizing these records, so I was able to access these records, and from these records, then I was able to parse out where uh, Sufi Khankas exist in which village, and then integrate. Um, that village uh, census le- 2011 code to census 2011 to get the census data from the 2011 and then also then integrate back to 2001 and 1991 using some other data sets, especially the shrug data set that uh, the um, a team of uh, faculty at Dartmouth has have recently released. Um, so then this was one source of uh, data and data integration that went on. Um, then... Um, so in the, from the census for example i in in, the, in for the market activity i was able to, to get data on which villages have regular regularly held markets which is weekly uh, markets that are held for at least a half a day or more than half a day um so um this measure is there in census but yeah required integration so that was one then i was able to integrate with uh, other sources For example, um, we have satellite data on how much economic activity we can see in the village through the proxy of nighttime luminosity. Now, this measure wouldn't be very useful for cities where uh, the agglomeration effect would be very different. But I think in rural India, in the developing world, it's still uh, pretty good. uh, It gives a sense of pretty good, uh, you know, it it gives a pretty good sense of economic activity that's going on. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. So... Let me ask you a research uh, methods question. We're not going to go too far into the into the weeds here, but I do research on local religious infrastructure too, right, um, and uh, looking uh, at the role of, of local churches in the Philippines in, in potentially sort of providing community protection from violence. And one question that I always get with that research is, okay, so you show that having a certain kind of religious institution changes politics somehow. Right? In my case, experiencing police violence. In your case, different indicators tied to economics or politics. Um, but we know that it's not random where churches get built. Or we know that it's not random where madrasas get built. Or we know that it's not random where Hanukkahs get located. Um, so you're not really showing me that this in- – this local religious institution is changing politics, it's just that they're somehow in the places where this kind of stuff is already going on, right? I'm just going to say the word endogeneity and not uh, go farther down that road, but listeners who know will know. Um, How do you think about that? Because it's obviously a challenge when you're trying to argue that these long-term historical patterns and institutions are changing politics today.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very, very crucial question, um, the question of endogeneity. And I have been... um, so engaged with this question for a long time, so uh, I, I developed a couple of uh, strategies to be able to convince the reader that, you know, yes, uh, we do see large associations uh, in the, the overall sample, but we also see, um, uh, by addressing the concerns of endogeneity, the same kind of relationships uh, turned out. I go about it using two strategies, uh, placebo tests and instrumental variable analysis, so, placebo test um, is where I look at um, uh, one large state in India, where which is the state of Punjab, where almost all Muslims migrated out during the partition of India. At the same time, when in India was partitioned and got independence, both India and Pakistan. So, the institutions there, the Sufi institutions there, they got abandoned. Uh, mostly, they got turned into cowsheds and. Or just were abandoned like that. Um, so uh, I would expect the uh, be- because of because of this partial treatment uh, treatment here being the Sufi Khanka, I would expect the results to be muted. Uh, I am not expecting uh, radically opposite uh, effects here, but I do expect because of the partial treatment to for the f- effects to also be partial to be muted. So that's what I see now. Uh, I have another placebo test, which is also a falsification test for the first placebo. So within the Punjab region, there's only one small region where violence does not happen, where Muslims do not leave for Punjab, which is the sub-region of Malay Kotla. There, historically, um, not historically, sorry, during the um, uh, partition Um, the Sikhs guarantee the Muslims that, you know, there will not be any violence happening. And there are a lot of studies done on this subject, especially by historians and anthropologists who know that, you know, right across the border of the region uh, of the Malay Kotla's uh, ruler's territory, there is violence going on, but on the other side, there is no violence going on. So um, there, the Khankas, Sufi Khankas, still do persist. It is a very small region, so it, it has a very uh, small sample size. But it is, I think, um, it does the job of showing that the muted effects that were expected of placebo one, we would not expect them of placebo two. And if that uh, comparative trend continues, of you know having normal statistics or comparable statistics to the overall sample, overall India sample, then um, that shows that. Uh, Uh, there is some confidence in in endogeneity, uh, in the lack of endogeneity here. And that's what I find, that the um, placebo-2 estimates are comparable to the overall sample estimates, and they are higher than the muted estimates for the placebo-1. The second um, strategy that I adopt is instrumental variable analysis, which I'm still working on. But the basic idea comes from uh, Richard Eaton's work on Bengal Delta, where he traces the shift in the course of the Ganga River, which is draining out of draining out into Bay of Bengal uh, in 16th century through its channel, uh, Hooghly Channel. And then through tectonic shifts or something that is naturally occurring inside the air, the river shifts drastically and then... Today it drains out through the Padma channel towards the east. What this shift in the course of the river does, it opens up new new areas, uh, makes you know deposits silts in new areas, makes new areas fertile. And then in this 16th century period, when this shift has happened, at the same time, uh, a lot of these uh, religious entrepreneurs, as Richard Eaton calls them, move into these expanding agrarian frontiers, to cut down forests, to mobilize labor, uh, and to establish agrarian communities. So uh, that's how a lot of Sufi Khankas uh, uh, get placed in the Bengal Delta. And I'm hoping to then use this um, shift in the course of river as an instrument, uh, to, to instrument the placement of Sufi Khankas and uh, Uh, There are some problems here, but yeah, I'm hoping it would, I'm I'm trying to still work that out, but I'm hoping to make this reverse shift as an instrument.
0: That's super interesting. Um, So, (coughs) 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 Um, so one thing that I'm curious about is um, you, you you give this sense in your research of this sort of real diversity among India's Muslims, right? And um, their institutional organization and, and the outcomes that that has. Uh, on the communities around these institutions. Um, These days in, let's say, uh, Hindu nationalist rhetoric, did they show any awareness of this internal diversity? Is there ever rhetoric about sort of good Islam and bad Islam that's tied to these different forms of organization? Um, Or not really, actually, from the point of view of the majority, are the Muslim minority communities all effectively kind of lumped together and treated the same?
1: That's a very fascinating question. Um, it, it, it is playing out at multiple levels, I think. I think first of all, the rise of uh, Hindu nationalism in Indian national politics is itself is a fascinating topic. But it is also a topic that is very different um, that is very different f- from the elections or the state level politics in India. State level politics in India is as diverse as it can be. Uh, National-level politics, for sure, Hindu nationalism has made huge inroads since the um, uh, late 80s. Um, But the state-level politics, uh, I think, is where um, we continue to see a lot of diversity, a lot of regional parties, a lot of lower-caste parties, a lot of uh, parties that don't really uh, make those demarcations based on religious identity uh, continue to win so i think uh the question of uh, muslims and the the use of i think the instrumental use of muslim as to whip up votes to mobilize votes it to whatever extent it is successful in the national level that too i think is uh that is first of all limited to the national level i don't think it's limit uh, it, it's effective at the sub national level and even at the national level if we look at the uh, votes, for example, of the BJP, which is the Hindu Nationalist Party. Uh, in the last election, 2019, it was only 37% or so. Uh, 37 point, I think, something percent. So, um, which is not even more than half the votes. Uh, in terms of the seats that it won, uh, it also won 55% of the seats, which again, for a very, very diverse and large country like in- India, um it is it is not you know it is just past the half mark um and the congress party which uh, which is uh uh the other party it it got 20% of the votes so in terms of just if you compare 37% 20% 20% uh, it is not a huge difference and if if we then look into non congress other parties they actually got the majority of the votes and uh seats uh yeah seats they didn't they didn't get but in terms of just we look at the vote distribution of votes, um, I think we will see that there is a lot of uh, uh, lot of scope there for to, to look into what exactly where exactly is Hindu nationalism winning and why, because again, even in the seats the the national seats the parliamentary seats, uh, there's a lot of electoral competition. There's a lot of money involved, of course, which has only increased since the BGP uh, came to power. But also um, a lot of regional parties, for example, the BSP and the RGAD, some of the uh, Deccan parties, they were trying to make in, in the last two decades, uh, trying to make more and more inroads into the national part, the national scene, the national politics. So this um this, this kind of turn to uh, anti Muslim rhetoric that is used. I think it's very much an instrumental move of the BJP. And it is also rooted very much in a very uh, decade old dynamic, which is Mandal versus Mandir. Mandal is the, um, Mandal is is popularly referred to, in a short form that is referred to the Mandal Commission. Mandal Commission is what gave the lower castes of India who um, are in the majority uh, affirmative action in education and in government employment. So right after Mandal is when we see this um, mobilization by the upper castes uh, to sort of push back against this uh, reservation's affirmative action for the lower caste, not directly, but by the use of uh, religion. So religion is used to, and, and there is an enemy here that is constructed, which is the Muslim enemy. Uh, which is used to then mobilize the lower caste into the movement for what is called as the movement to demolish Babri Masjid, the Babri Mosque. And they were able to successfully demolish uh, Babri Mosque in 1992. Um, so I think this both these dynamics play out very well in the national level. And I think if we contrast the national and the state level, we see them much more strongly, where the lower caste parties, the regional parties... Um, that don't really differentiate be- uh, on the lines of religion are stronger. But the national level politics, which to some extent also, uh, I think by its institutional design, requires a degree of uh, whipping up emotions. Um, there, the religious re- rhetoric be- has uh, recently become more successful.
0: Yeah, I, I actually don't know this. Um, does, have you looked in your research at whether the local institutions that you're studying play any role in um, protecting communities from the experience of anti-Muslim violence? So, I haven't yet looked into it. I do plan to look into do, it. Do you, would you expect that there might be something there or no?
1: I would certainly expect that um, because of these legacies of uh, uh, sort of um, Sufi Hankas, which don't differentiate between not only religion but also genders or caste or, or class and it's is um, like widely accessible uh, I think the sh- the sh- um, shared emotions in these religious institutions such as Sufi khankas, which are accessible would allow for shared um sort of uh, voter demands and shared sort of, Uh, sentimentality that would be difficult to breach through whipping up of emotions during religious riots. So religious riots wouldn't be successful, I would expect. But uh, that would not be the case, I think, in the um, traditionally or historically agrarian belts of India, the North India, the Hindi belt, where we have more madarsas, where we also have a higher number of upper castes who were uh, historically hired by the Mughal states, Mughal state and um where i think the organization organizational capacity is much more uh consolidated along uh, religious lines and there i think we would see these um religious riots among hindus and muslims uh, kind of um symptomatic of of the elite uh, competing with each other outside of uh, outside of the domain of the electoral uh, um electoral politics
0: yeah, so one uh project that you're involved in that I wanted to get you to talk about related to political violence, but in a, in a new sphere, um, is your work on online hate speech um, and uh, anti-Muslim violence in the, uh, in the country, especially tied to, to social media and, and Twitter. Um, this is obviously a huge topic. It's not just something that goes on in India. It's gone on in, um, you know, just off the top of my head in different Asian cases, um, places like Indonesia, Sri Lanka, um, uh, Bangladesh. Um, in the Indian context, how do we see online? What does online hate speech look like? Is it different than other forms of kind of sectarian incitement? Um, and uh, how does it um, uh, engage with the country's uh, Muslim minority?
1: So, in Indian in Indian context, the online hate speech is is uh, I mean, online um, platform is itself a very new phenomena, a decade or so old, um, but. I think, I am um, trying to look into it through the point of view of Paul Brass, another political scientist who had done detailed study of uh, Merit, uh, the city of Merit and city of Aligar. And he came up uh, with, the, with the idea of institutionalized riot system, where there are people who professionalize in uh, spreading rumors, in instigating um, opinion locally, in creating uh, animosities, then which are then captured by um, or leveraged by the politicians for their electoral ends, to to basically to polarize the electorate along religious lines rather than say more programmatic lines or redistributory lines or the the age-old dynamic, the lower caste versus upper caste uh, lines. So I think we see. I I would expect. Uh, I haven't yet. Uh, Uh, finish this project but uh, what we are expecting is to see similar dynamic where around the period of elections we would see a rise in hate speech by politicians basically in order to polarize the voters to vote along religious lines and then so you know uh, there could be different strategies that we can adopt we can look into one year after and one year before the elections to see uh, once the, they, they win the elections, does, do still the same patterns of uh, hate speech and extreme, extreme speech persist or not? Um, I would expect not because they're only really useful um, close to the election in order to win the, win the seats. So uh, we would we would I think expect to see similar dynamic, the instrumental use of um, extreme speech to maximize chances of, of winning elections.
0: Um, maybe we can kind of start to wrap up by stepping back a little bit, actually. So it's, it's pretty common these days in the international press to see um, accounts of democracy in India that treat it as uh, very threatened, right? Democratic backsliding, um, threats of interreligious violence, um, breaking down of secularism in the country, um, you name it, right? There's lots of different ways to, to frame the, the pessimism, but pessimism, right, would be, I think, overall... Um, how the health of Indian democracy, especially when it comes to religion, is frequently treated. Um, I'm curious how you, your your research, uh, at least your main research project, is very fine-grained and localized, right? Um, and not as focused on contemporary national politics. But how do you think about the national level health of Indian democracy in light of some of the findings that you have in your research? Is there a more optimistic story? Or, um, or how does your work... Intersect with the kind of media narratives about uh, the health of Indian democracy.
1: So, so I in in my work I uh, I don't address this question of health of the democracy in the, sh- the short run, but uh, my my understanding mm. is that um, certainly at, at the national level there has been um, uh, d- uh, deterioration of the. Institutions, the national institutions, but again, when I look into state level institutions and state level politics, a lot of them seem to be thriving more than ever. So, and that gives me has always given me hope that it's, it's and it's usually the state level uh, political parties, uh, which are much much more representative, much more um, sort of uh, leaning towards a fair and. Equality-based uh, view of the the different castes and classes in India, um, that that you know they they have historically come up with a lot of programs and policies that are then adopted by the national government later on once they are proven that they work at the state level. So that I think that's what the I would expect uh, that a lot of the um, uh, trends would be overtaken by again these uh, regional political dynamics. and uh, I think the next decade is going to be especially crucial in that regard because next decade uh, is when we are going to see the redistribution of parliamentary seats in India. Um, what what that means is that since 1974 we haven't had an increase in our parliamentary seats in two thousand and eight, we only had um, the
0: United States Congress has gone two hundred more years. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but we have had a very huge increase in population since then. And the reason why our parliamentary seats were frozen was to um so so that you know states which were doing very well in controlling their population, they were not they did not feel left out because the states that were not doing well and were also poorer. The northern Hindi belt states, um, they they wouldn't have an incentive to just uh, to to not control um, their population. So um, that freeze is going to be uplifted very soon, and I think uh, a lot of these dynamics of uh, say religious rhetoric that is used again is is very much based uh, in North India versus uh, a lot of the southern states have much, much more progressive policies. Their Muslims are doing as uh, as well or even better off than the other communities. And um, their institutions are have been and are more and more becoming stronger, the state-level institutions. So I think uh, where this dynamic leads to is going to be very, very crucial. Um, that's what we are looking into. I, I think looking into the India Alliance, for example, that has been recently formed, by uh, a lot of regional parties and Congress as well. We'll have to mm-hmm. see w- what regional parties are able to bring to the table of national politics and how they are able to or not able to change the national politics. So yeah, in that sense, uh, it is it is a very dynamic period. And I'm, I'm very hesitant to call all Indian politics as having gone through a, a democratic decline or democratic retrenchment. Certainly some institutions, especially at the national level, have gone through, and uh, especially those under the control of um, the the, the Hindu Nationalist Party. But overall, uh, I, I do see a lot of reasons for hope, and not just in one form, the southern states, but also different forms. There are different parties in the north as well. That are trying to make change. They have made changes in the at the state level politics. Um, Army party is one that is currently ruling both Delhi state, the city state, and Punjab. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there, there's a lot. There's a lot of I uh, think uh, mixed dynamics going
0: on there. Yeah, I mean, that brings to mind a, a conversation that our listeners might actually want to check out. We had uh, Lisa Mitchell from uh, UPenn here um, last week to talk about her great book. Um, hailing the state um, on effectively kind of localized forms of political accountability in India, right? And it's, it's easy to lose track of um, the overall vitality and activity um, of grassroots democracy in India um, in some of the local communities that she's studying in that book. Video is online on our website, uh, but also in the communities that you're uh, studying through, through your research. So we're thrilled to have you here at the university. Um, we'll look forward to spotlighting your research over the course of uh this year. Um and thanks for joining us today to share. It was a pleasure. Um to our listeners, um we are glad to be with you as always. Uh the Center for Asian Democracies podcast um, will be back with a couple more episodes uh, before the end of the semester actually. We'll have a conversation, really fascinating conversation on religion and Japanese politics coming up before long. Um and then we'll um probably have a conversation spotlighting um the upcoming Bangladesh election um as the semester wraps up. Um, as always keep an eye on our Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and Instagram accounts for event announcements. We have a talk uh, coming up uh, in the coming weeks uh, with Professor Alexander uh, Pelletier um, on Islam and democracy in Indonesia, uh, which we're thrilled to to be uh, uh, convening. We'll have a couple of events related to Indonesia coming up, um, as that country faces a very important election in the coming months as well. Um, More information available online in all of those sources. As always, subscribe to the Inside Asia podcast on services like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we'll be back with future episodes before long. Be well. Be well.